hey, sitting around listening to the radio. Hey, listening to KALX 90.7 Berkeley. Gonna do that indie thing, gonna do that radio thing, gonna do it, do it, do
Hey, this is KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. Just heard from the Cherry Blossoms with Josephine Foster doing, I think, a Shaker-inspired song. They put out a collaborative record a few years ago. You may be able to find it. There's no label on it, but out there. Yards off of her beautiful Bird Brains album from last year. Heard the song Synonym. Synonym. Um, saw her on last weekend with Juju at the bottom of the hill, and her show was so good. If you get a chance, you really should try to see her live. Uh, strange to be paired with Juju, though. I feel like a lot of people were confused by the conflicting energies in the place but myself included but you know heard from Gaster Del Sol off of their last album Camouflure uh, the song Mouth Canyon David Balula or David Balula with Domotic off of a compilation called Active Suspension versus Clapping Music those are the two labels that put it out they had a collaborative song Pure Glass um, and The Wisdom of Harry with a couple songs off their first record at the top of that long set this is KLX. we do the Ride Finder um, twice a day, 10 and 10 we have one ride offered with no date attached so who knows, this is Fernando and he's going to L.A. Give them a call, 510-502-1566. And uh, Wanted Rides, Fernando, you could talk to Adrian, who wants to go to L.A. on the 26th. I'm not even sure if... So that was yesterday, so never mind. And in fact, uh, we have no rides wanted, because they're all outdated. But uh, give Fernando a call if you want to go to L.A. 510-502-1566. This is the Round Nagaki program. We're going to be here for another hour before women hold up half the sky at 11. Um, still have those Claire and True Magritte and Jill Knight tickets for the bottom of the hill for this Sunday tomorrow. Um, so give a call 510-642-KALX if you want those. Or if you have any requests.
that's the Black Lips on your Calyx. An unreleased song um, called The Ballad of Ray Marsh. Preceded by New Tenant from Girls, local band. Uh, it's that tune, Hellhole Rat Race. It's out on True Panther Sounds. And the top of that set, top of the hour, um, something from the second Pomo Popo record, Sky History was the name of the song. It's out on Constellation Records. Next time you saute or fry up your favorite foods, don't pour the leftover cooking grease down the drain. Grease clogs pipes, not only in your home, but also the pipes that connect to the wastewater system in your area. Blocked pipes can cause sewage backups in your home and overflows into the street, local creeks, and the bay. Dispose of cooking grease the right way. Put it in a container and go find a free grease recycling drop-off location near you. Learn more about grease disposal at baywise.org. www.baywise.org. Dirty Projectors have a new 7-inch out on Domino. And um, I was thinking about jamming the A side of it called Ascending Melody. But I think I'm going to let this play out a little bit more. This is some music from some of the uh, deep listening band. Stuart Dempster, Tom Heasley, Eric Glick, Ryman. Um, some improv. They have a new record on a label called Full Bleed. If you have any questions about what you're hearing, um, kalx.berkeley.edu is the website. You can find playlists, etc.
Kyle. K-A-L-X. 90.7 yeah, the fighters are united in the style by freedom of love. Brushwork and color in their Sing work. Again. For any questions, please call 408-247-3754. God bless. The name of the next song is Anti-American.
Music from Mertz on your Calyx. This is the self-titled, or um, the title track from their Love Streams album. Preceded by a nice long one from Arthur Russell. The name of that song uh, was the name of the next song. It's off of The World of Echo from 85, reissued on CD recently, uh, or within the last five years. It's all hand percussion, cello, 
vocals and reverb. Um, heard from Saijin Ono with the song Ta Ta Ta. After the Dirty Projectors off of a new 7-inch called Ascending Melody. It's the Round Nagaki program. Uh, we got about 12 more minutes before Women Hold Up Half the Sky takes over. Um, there's a show tonight at the Swedish American Music Hall. It's Dear Companion Tour featuring Ben Soli and Daniel Martin Moore. It's tonight at 8, all ages, not wheelchair accessible. You and a friend want to go to that, just give a call here, 510-642-5259. And, uh... gonna jam some new music from try to throw throw a loop in um the life partners are a band out of boston kind of a, a spoofy noise band that includes greg kelly um who's a little more well known as like a improv trumpet kind of noise guy um but they have a new record out on Ride the Snake, it's called. Men are talking. I think I'm going to play a song off of this called Rock and Roll Never Forgives. In just a bit. Thank you. 
Calyx is brought to you in part by the Daily Californian's Best of Berkeley issue. Available April 15th and 17th on newsstands and online at bestofberkeley.dailycal.org. That's the Daily Californian sponsoring alternative programming on KALX Berkeley. So apologies if that Life Partner song kind of threw you kind of felt I had to play it for sentimental reasons
hearing some newly released music from a band who I think is local called Bad Drumlin Grass. Uh, this is off a record called Live at Timber Cove. The band played a show up at Timber Cove where they're outside the Timber Cove Inn, I believe. There's a, let's see, there's a sculpture by um, Beniamino Bufano, an Italian-American sculptor based in California, best known for his large granite sculptures. Um, it's a protest against World War I. He chopped off his trigger finger and mailed it to President Woodrow Wilson with the note, Modern warfare, which involves the bombing of women and children, has no counterpoint in a piece interpreted by the conventional motif of olive branches and doves. He made a really cool um, totem sculpture that's at the Timber Cove Inn. I'm not sure, though, if you can get up close to the sculpture without paying money to stay at the inn, which is kind of a drag, but... Whatever, this band did a free show there for peace, I think, last year. And the, I think, excerpts of it are on this record. Very cool. Uh, it's out on Milvia Sun Recordings. And I'm going to leave you with this. Women Hold Up Half the Sky will be up in about four minutes. Stay tuned. KLX Berkeley.
And good morning. You are tuned to KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. This is Women Hold Up Half the Sky. I'm your host, Jolie Johnson. The time is 11.01 in the morning here, March the 27th, 2010. And today on the show, a sampling of some of our wonderful music uh, by women here that we have in our studio in our uh, feature and in our uh, just general library as a whole, and three mini-interviews that I've had a chance to do over the years, uh, three really fascinating women talking about, I think, some really interesting stuff. So stay tuned. We're going to get to uh, first the music. This is Emily Bond, and it's, uh, the CD is called Songs from Alabama Street. It's self-released by Ms. Bond, and this is track one, Riot at the right, R-I-T-E, spot. Enjoy in your calendar. Gerard Tussle, the girl from New Orleans. Oh, little Illinois, let me ride at the right spot. 
you just joined us, the show's Women Hold Up Half the Sky on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Jolie Johnson, speaking today with Allison Owings, author, editor, uh, in, here in the Bay Area, the author of a book which we're discussing, Hey Waitress. She's a Hey Waitress, right? The USA from the Other Side of the Tray, published in its second printing right now, published by University of California Press, an excellent nonfiction work, um, really reads like a novel, and, and um, very few nonfiction books do read so well. Um, getting you. back to the history or her story of waitressing, you, you go in great detail for uh, um, an introduction or, or a chapter, a person called Frances Donovan, mm-hmm. who I guess was a, um, a social worker, uh, anthropologist, if I remember correctly, and she went yeah. and decided she was going to kind of see what all this, what these women were like that, that go worked in restaurants. Go undercover as a waitress. Yeah. Because you, you, you go and explore the idea of, of women that did work in waitresses as somehow tainted Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly living fast lives, um, and you talk a little bit about what she saw and how she reacted with those waitresses. My questions really are two. two. Um, number one, why talk so much about Frances Donovan and what she did? And number two, uh, which may be related to the first question, was Frances Donovan to you a bit of a warning of what not to do, um, not to go and to try to interact with waitresses looking sort of down at them? Oh, yeah. You know, um, well, first questions first. Um, the reason that I I quoted from her so much is that she's so rare. So mm. many, so few people really wrote about waitresses, and she did. She wrote this, this was in the early. This is around nineteen twelve. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she she was uh, a sociologist, sort of. I I think she was sort of a, a Jill of all trades, if you were, and. And she was very upset when she decided to put on a, an apron and become a waitress that everyone immediately thought she was a waitress. <laughs> she sort of thought that her higher bearing in life should uh, make people think, oh, you couldn't possibly be a waitress. And she was upset they thought immediately she was a waitress because she was wearing a uniform. She uh, interested me enormously in part because she did what she did. And uh, a little bit not unlike what Barbara Ehrenreich did in Nickled and Dimed, she she pretended in a way she was someone she wasn't just to get the scoop and i thought it was a terrific idea that she did it and what struck me also in reading her book is that so much has not changed in terms of uh let's just say how men treat waitresses and how the the hungry young lad from the country as she sort of described him would come to town lonely and want conversation with a girl well, where can you get conversations such as that without being slapped in the face? The waitress has to talk with you. So that parallel is the same. And also she said that uh, she realized that women with young children were less likely to tip well. And some waitresses have told me that's, that's certainly the, still the case. And there were a lot of parallels. That interested me a lot. But your second question alludes to this other problem, this one problem I had with her, which was, Indeed, she felt she was better than than they were in certain ways. She was appalled at their foul language. Unfortunately, she never gave examples of the foul language. I got very curious, but she never said what it was. And she was um, appalled at how they would they would go out with men and how they they looked so pretty and yet they were so degraded in their in their personal behavior. And uh, she was worried about them, but she also thought that uh, this is the life they had chosen. And, and she, she portrayed them somewhat uh, almost like 
gypsies, I guess. You, that someone you think of as p- apart from you, different from you, but um, had great resiliency and, and, and great verve and a great lust for life. But she would say such things as, oh, they never cleaned their teeth properly and they just didn't know how to save money. Yeah, she I, didn't I seem to think of them as, um, as, as women who were a product of the society they came from. They were escaping sometimes horrible lives and they felt a certain amount of freedom and they wanted to blow their tips. I know a lot of waitresses who like to blow their tips. And I interviewed one of the world, possibly the world's oldest waitress at 95, uh, Marguerite Schertle. She's still waitressing. <laughs> well, she, she died at the age of 100, actually. Uh-huh. It took me a long time to write this book. But she had just been tripped by the breakfast girl, uh, Charlotte, who was 85. And I think Charlotte might have done it on purpose. This is at the Women's Exchange in Baltimore. And and she was very opinionated. She had And she had waited on the Duchess of Windsor when she was back when she was Wallace Simpson. I mean, these women go back with lots and lots of memories. Anyway, she was still upset with, with Charlotte for not folding the napkins appropriately, and I think Charlotte may have uh, left her foot out there a little long on purpose. If you've just joined us, again, the show is Women Hold Up Half the Sky on KALX Berkeley. 90.7 FM, I'm your host, Jolie Johnson, discussing the book, Hey Waitress. I can't just shout that out, you know. The <laughs> USA from the Other Side of the Tray, published by University of California Press in its second printing. Uh, the author is Allison Owens, who has uh, graciously agreed to come and visit us here in Berkeley today to uh, discuss her work. Uh, Allison Owens is also the author of a book published in 1993 entitled Frauen, German Women Recall the Third Reich. Also, um, from what I can tell, um, based on interviews and so forth like this one. Um, you move on to We Should Be Respected, Professionals, Chapter 2. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorite chapters, and and it is because people have this idea, this notion that waitressing is just a a fill in the gap measure for most women, and I certainly for a lot of women it is, and it's something maybe you do in college or maybe you do it just for a period here or there, and that's certainly true. But I think a lot of people don't realize that women do make conscious choices to do this job and take it very seriously. And they're upset with women who say, oh, well, if all else fails, I can always be a waitress, because there's some stories in here of, of women who had that attitude until their first breakfast shift. Like the struggling, the, the, the stereotypical struggling actor, or, act, or I should say actress, uh-huh. uh, working as a waitress until the big break. Until the thing, big yeah. break, or until yeah. whatever happens. There, there are lots of stories about that, but the professionals really, I think, are are terribly dissed, really, because people can't believe that someone would choose to do this as a job. And one of the women in the book uh, told me something I thought was was quite poignant. She said that uh, she found something she loved to do. She was very good at it, and uh, she was well rewarded for it. This is a woman who worked in New Orleans. And she said, so I found something I love to do, and I'm good at it. What more can one ask from work? Indeed. We're going to take a short musical break, and when we come back, we will uh, continue talking about the many women that Alison Owens interviewed in the uh, production of her book. And actually, Alison will also read from one of, she says, her favorite stories from her work. We'll be right back. 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Jolie Johnson, and I've had the pleasure for the past half hour or so speaking with Alison Owens, author, editor here in the Bay Area. Uh, her book, 
fascinating book, actually, and I, I do not lie when I say that uh, it reads like a novel. Um, the prose is very clear, entertaining, and frankly, extremely informative, which uh, that combination, I think, in a nonfiction book is very rare. Uh, the book itself is called Hey Waitress, the USA from the Other Side of the Tray, published by University of California Press. It's in its second printing right now. Uh, Allison is also, if I've mentioned, the author of a 1993 book, hey, um, excuse me, Frauen, German Women Recall the Third Reich, itself also uh, based on interviews uh, that, that she had a chance to do. Um, we just finished talking a little bit about uh, Chapter 2, in which women talk about the fact that they're professionals, that they want to be considered professionals, that they do not like at all the fact that people see waitressing as a stopgap measure as a, oh, well, I could always waitress. Oh, I'll just, I'll waitress when I'm in college type of thing. And you actually have what you said, a favorite, uh, one of your favorite uh, interviewees, a, peop- per- a woman that you spoke to, and you, you were going to read a little bit about about her. Perhaps you could set set it up, tell us a little bit about her, and then, sure. and then read it for us. Sure. This is from the chapter on the professionals, and this woman's name is Margie Watson. She grew up very, very poor, dirt poor, on a farm in in Tennessee, and she was and remains very proud of herself for managing to get to Memphis and support herself by waitressing. And she had almost no sense of humor, which was curious because I would tend to laugh at things that she didn't think were funny at all. But I realized I didn't have the hard life Margie Watson had, and everything that she said was very serious. Everything that had to do with serving a a rude customer uh, that I might have thought was kind of funny, as in this following scene, um, she did not, because it's all it's all serious work. It's it's getting by and earning a living. So, with that in mind, uh, let me start. Her first Memphis boss was known as Daddy Ray Gammon. Daddy Ray, he always told me the customer's always right. Whether you think so or not, you've got to let them think they're always right. Don't stoop down to their low and be like them. Smile and say, I'm sorry. Walk away. He was the best teacher I ever had. It's like when somebody is gripey. A man came into the restaurant one day and he ordered spaghetti. I went by and I noticed he wasn't eating his spaghetti. I said, sir, is something wrong with your spaghetti? He said, don't worry about it and knocked it plumb up across the table against the wall. I reached over and I was just going to get it out of the way. He said, don't touch it. So I said, oh, excuse me, you know. I went to Daddy Ray and I told him what had happened. Daddy Ray told Margie not to charge the man anything if he would not take a replacement meal. When he came to the register to pay his ticket, I said, Sir, you don't owe me a dime. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. He was real hollering now. I said, Your spaghetti's on us because you didn't eat it. Undoubtedly, there was something wrong with it. He said, I insist on paying the bill. And I said, I insist that we don't take the money from the customers if they're not satisfied. That's our policy. The man left. Two hours later, Margie felt a tap on her shoulder. I had done forgot about the incident because I had been so busy. He came back and he said, Ma'am, you went out of your way to be extra nice to me. You apologized. You tried every way under the sun to make me happy. And he said, I was so rude to you, it's pathetic. My conscience is bothering me. I've come back to pay for that spaghetti because it cost y'all money. To begin with, it wasn't nothing wrong with it. He said... Me and my wife had just had a fight when I came in here, and I come in and took it out on y'all spaghetti and on you.
Patty Larkin singing with, hang on, Lucy Kaplonsky and a song called Tango. That's from uh, Patty Larkin's release called 25, released by Road Narrows Records. Those are 25 love songs on two CDs with the likes of Roseanne Cash, Martin Sexton, um, we got uh, Mary Chapman Carpenter, Janice Ian, just lots of, uh, you know, noted singers, songwriters, men and women, accompanying her on that, uh, on this CD. Before that, um, I had the uh, interview with Allison Owens about her book, uh, Hey Waitress, The Other Side of the Tray. Before that, Stricken City, the group gave us uh, from their um, Stricken City uh, CD, a song called Small Things, Cora Records, and started us all off here on Women Hold Up Half the Sky with Emily Bond's rousing riot at the right spot from her CD Songs from Alabama, and she released that herself, self-released. You are listening to Women Hold Up Half the Sky on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and we're going to continue today's feature of, uh, well, featuring music that we have here in our KALX library that you can uh, always call up and request if you uh, like what you hear, and uh, also snippets, I should say, of interviews I've had a chance. Some of the really, I think, in my mind, some of the the most fun I had in, in talking with authors about other women or talking to women about themselves in this world. So uh, we'll get to that uh, momentarily. You know, uh, actually see if anybody wants to go see a comedy show this Thursday at 8 p.m. at Cafe du Nord in San Francisco. And uh, it's a Marga's Laugh Party featuring Marga Gomez, W. Camus Bell, Yane uh, Beba, Lauren Kraut, and Bucky Sinister. So if you and a friend would like to go to see that, give me a call, 510-642-KALX, 510-642-5259. Now, you want to wait until you hear the music, because if I'm talking, I can't talk to you, right? And um, it is 21 and over, right? Because it's kind of a club bar thing type of stuff. But uh, there you go, on Market Street, I believe. So give me a call if you'd like to go see that comedy show this Thursday, April the 1st, 8 p.m., Marga's Laugh Party going to a little bit of music, and then we'll return to some of our interview features. Uh, this is uh, avant-garde uh, pianist Lisa Moore. The CD is called Seven, and this is track five. Wait a minute. Yes, five. Piano Etude number five. Enjoy. On your Calyx. Thank you. 
I'm Ann Magnuson, and you're listening to KALX, Berkeley. Bessie Smith, Take Nobody's Business. If I do, uh, of course, uh, 1920s um, emblem, as it were, and uh, an emblem for, for a woman that we're going to talk about today. Uh, to give you an idea of, of the fame that this woman had, excuse me, during her time, uh, the page before the title page of, of this book reads uh, thusly, Warning, if you cannot stand excitement, See your doctor before visiting Mae West in sex. The person, of course, is uh, Mae West, famed actress and uh, celebrity of the 20s and 30s. And uh, the, pl- the book itself is called Three Plays by Mae West. Uh, sex, uh, the plays themselves being Sex, the Drag, and the Pleasure Man. And uh, I'm going to have a chance today on the show uh, to talk with uh, the editor of the book, uh, Lillian Sleasel, who is uh, currently uh, the director of the American Studies Program at Brooklyn College. The book itself is published by Rutledge. And uh, Lillian, thank you for taking time out of your schedule there in Brooklyn, the most exotic of places to us Californiaites, uh, to talk to us on the show, Women Hold Up Half the Sky. Great, great pleasure. Now, um, let's first of all uh, back off just a little bit and talk about uh, Mae West. Uh, many may know of her, they may not know of her. In a, in a, in a brief synopsis, what is her fame? What, is, what, what was she so famous for? Well, she's an extraordinary woman. She was born in 1893, uh, died in 1980, so she's almost 100. She almost spans a century. Uh, she began in vaudeville when she was a child of maybe four, five, six, and almost immediately was a hit on the stage, loved the stage. Kind of a sexy Shirley Temple. Um, Her mother put her on the stage, and the spotlight was something she adored. She made everything she could sing suggestive. I mean, it was something that she just kind of naturally did. And she was very funny. Um, the thing that people remember about her is that she made sex funny at an age when sex wasn't funny. Um, you barely spoke about sex in 1910, 1911. I mean, you have no idea how early that was. Um, this is still a Victorian age. And Mae West comes along and makes jokes. Uh, makes jokes that sex is funny and fun. She also suggest begin to suggest to audiences very early that bad girls have a very good time now none of this is done at the point that she begins doing it everything goes back to Mae West um, and she's really very remarkable she wrote her own dialogue wrote her own script there are at least a dozen of her scripts in the Library of Congress and it's been years that we've been trying to get the rights to publish them uh, because they are very clever. When she went out to Hollywood in 1931, she wrote all her own dialogue. Didn't write all the scripts of the plays, but whatever she spoke, she wrote. And if you see any of the old Mae West movies today, they are still a laugh. It's still a belly laugh. Well, I can think of, I mean, the, the, the main thing that I think that even when I was young, 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of middle school, junior high, high school, and not really even having a conception of what she did or how she lived is, come up and see me sometime. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, I think everyone knows that line, that sort of vampy, uh, kind of sexy kind of uh, female figure. Um, you talk about uh, her her the, the, her fame coming from the fact that she was very sexual in a way. She made sex funny. She she broke barriers. Um, right. you, you mentioned in the introduction that in 1935, she was the highest paid woman uh, in America, in the United States, That's right. um, which is, is is amazing. Now, her fame, we, we think back uh, with her family, and uh, she started at an early age, from what you, you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. on the circuit, as it were. Yep. Talk to us a little bit about, and I find this, this fascinating, this idea of, of vaudeville, of, of the comics, of the, the tours, because frankly, in the, in the teens and the early 20s, film was not the right. mass market that it is, and, and families went to, if I'm correct, in New York and other places, right but specifically New York, because we're talking about Mae West and mm-hmm. the plays that were produced there, that's where Mom and Dad took Johnny and Susie uh, on the weekend to vaudeville to yeah. to uh, to be entertained. Is that, is that, vaudeville is that correct? Vaudeville has a funny reputation because there is vaudeville that, that starts to be family entertainment. It's a cross between a circus and a show. It's not one, it's not the other. Um, on the one end is minstrelsy, which by 1900 had begun to die out, but minstrelsy is the only thing out there that has song and dance. And so vaudeville is a little bit minstrelsy, a little bit theater, a little bit of anything they can put together. A bill goes on almost all day. It's like 14 acts. And it tries very hard to be wholesome, but it doesn't always succeed. At the other end of the spectrum, you have burlesque, and that starts... Uh, about 1910, 1911, burlesque doesn't even try to be wholesome. So you have minstrelsy, you have vaudeville, which is supposed to be good and and clean, fun, and then you have burlesque, and you have vaudeville sort of stealing from either end. It's still a little bit from the minstrel shows, it's still a little bit from burlesque. And what, what vaudeville performers would do is they would tell a blue joke, and when the manager said, now don't say that again, they would say, sure thing, and of course then put it back in the next act. So vaudeville is that, that kind of slippery um, performance, and people adored it. And I mean, Mae West... It, uh, everybody liked it. Mae West, uh, she, this is where she uh, earned her, uh, right. her stars, wasn't it? Right. And this is where she tra- honed her skill? That's right. And then she, she's on reviews, she's on the road. She marries very briefly in 1911 when she's only 17 and dumps him almost immediately. Uh, and then she's determined that she's going to be a single. This is the time when very few people are, very few women are singles. There's maybe Fanny Bryce, Mae West, Sophie Tucker. Now, when you mention singles, you don't mean the fact that she's not married. You mean an no. act, an act. I mean, she's a star and she plays with nobody on the stage. There's a bare stage and then there's... Um, either Eva Tangway or Sophie Tucker, a woman alone is, um, it's revolutionary. It doesn't exist. In the theater, women are always in domestic interiors. They're always in a house. And on the stage, you played uh, Bessie Smith. The black circuit began to have women as singles. And this is really what it is. This is Mae West uh, being, in, as it were, a black star. I mean, because she was as naughty um, and a lot of her material deliberately taken from uh, the black circuit and uh, blues stars and jazz stars. Duke Ellington, uh, Bessie Smith, she steals from everybody. She 
specifically took Duke Ellington out with her to Hollywood to play background for some of her songs. I mean, she knew good music. She knew black music. She would go up to Harlem to the Cotton Club because a gangster named Oni Madden was her good friend. And so she heard all this music. She said, I learned the shimmy in 1911 in the south side of Chicago and went home the same night and put it in her act. It's deliberately provocative in terms of in this interracial uh, suggestiveness that's in the back of all her, everything she does. I got a lot, a lot of what I got. And what I got's all mine. And I'll show you, I can show you if you're feeling blue. Come up and sing this song. I got a flat where you can hang your hat. I got a brand new line. Maybe you would like me to explain it all to you. Mm. Come up and see. 